Okay, let's say you're having a, an interview for a new teaching position and you get this question. What is teaching? What would you say? What would your colleague across the hallway say? Would there be inconsistency in the answers? Would there be in totally different spaces? Do we actually have that conversation on what is teaching? And I know that throughout my career, I have progressed and thought differently about what teaching is, what it looks like, what the role is. And I think a lot of us grew up watching movies and we saw teachers to be a certain way. We watched movies where teachers would stand up on desks and they would inspire their kids and all of these other things. And sometimes I think some of those portrayals actually focus more on the teacher in the classroom than the learning that actually happens because of the teacher. And do we look at that? And I'm not saying if you are a teacher that gets up on desk and gets really excited that you're a bad teacher, not at all. But I think sometimes we kind of have a vision of what teaching looks like, but we don't necessarily have the conversation. And that's why I was actually really interested in this conversation that I just had with Andrew Maxey, who wrote this book called Elephant in the Classroom, Tracing the Complexity of Teaching by Exploring 13 Competencies and Practices. Because of all the conversations that I've had, I think just asking the question, what is teaching is one that I don't know if I ever actually had on this podcast. So I think not only is this a great podcast to listen to, but I think it's a great question to consider, to have uh, with your colleagues, with staff, with each other. I'd love to hear your thoughts if what is teaching, and Andrew would actually share that. Uh, you probably couldn't put the answer in a YouTube comment, but you know I, I would love to hear your thoughts. So if you're on YouTube watching this, I'd love to see your, your comments down below when you think what is teaching. Maybe even write them before you hear what Andrew has to say. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. We went in so many different directions. Uh, talked a little bit about football. Talked a little bit uh, about some of the mistakes I made in my teaching career and how I have kind of progressed in my thinking. Not only with teaching, but how we see technology. Great conversation. Really loved it. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovators Mindset Podcast. Hey everyone, this is George Kroos and welcome back to another episode of the Innovators Mindset Podcast. And today I actually have uh, Andrew Maxey, who is the Director of Strategic Initiatives in his school district in Alabama. He's, he's taught in several places uh, across the United States. And he actually has a new book out that just was released at the end of 2021. It's called The Elephant in the Classroom, Tracing the Complexity of Teaching by Exploring 13 Competencies and Practices. And so I'm really kind of excited uh, to kind of dig into this book, hear more about it, some of the stuff that you found through your research, through your writing. But Andrew, if you could just introduce yourself uh, to the audience and who you are, what you do today, and, and how you got to that point. I love it. Thank you so much for the opportunity, George. And so, uh, yeah, Andrew Maxey, and I work here in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, obligatory roll tide. Uh, <laughs> right. And I, I sit there, I can see the stadium from my office window. Oh, wow. So oh, yeah. I forgot that they're in the, so we're recording this before the national championship game, right? Well, but I mean, let's just go ahead and say <laughs> what has already happened. There's, right. there's no doubt. <laughs> okay, well, hey, this is recorded now, so it's going to be after the game. So we'll this is either right. age well or badly, either exactly, way. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, so I'm here in Tuscaloosa, and as you said, I'm Director of Strategic Initiatives here for the district. It's a really cool opportunity to be part of some stuff that has is designed to have a big impact on kids, such as the work we do around summer learning. Like, we're trying to, uh, we say, normalize summer learning, which... Uh, right. 
means to us, uh, kids aren't required to come at all. Mm -hmm. But we've been doing this work over the last three years where uh, parents send their kids anyway and, and kids are dying to come um, and we use the national model. So there's that. Uh, I work with our librarians and uh, I just got to put a plug in like I, I honestly don't understand how, at least in the United States across the country, we somehow think that we can build strong readers and let our libraries die. Like that's not right. how it works. Kids right. need lots of books and they need professionals. So we're trying to do that work. And then there, there are other projects along those lines as well. Uh, I, I've taught in three states, including Alabama. I started my career in rural Indiana. I taught in San Diego, just the last exit before you get uh, yeah. to the international border. Um, and look, talk about three really different experiences uh, teaching in those places. Um, yeah. But for me, that really informs some of my thinking and even the work in the book that uh, the circumstances, the details, the application of teaching varies and can vary quite a bit. But but teaching as a profession that there's uh, that that is common. It's it's the same across uh, all contexts and, and I, I would argue across uh, subject areas even. Right. Um, so the book is an attempt uh, to say, just answer the question, what is teaching? Uh, because we don't have this common snapshot. Uh, we all know what's in there. Mm -hmm. But I think not having that common picture of teaching allows us to forget it, to forget the complexity when we make decisions about teaching mm -hmm. um, and then just continue to pile on layers of more complexity. So the purpose of the book is to say, look, here, here's a map and, and let's look at it. And then if that really is an elephant that we don't talk about, which is how complex teaching is. So what should we do about that? So right. that, that's, the, that's, uh, that's the, where the book came from and what it, I hope it does. Well, and yeah, and I'm excited to dig into this more. I got, I got a couple other questions for you before we get into it though. I, right. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about, um, the comment that you made about librarians, and I agree with you, right? But I also know, and I, I don't know if you say but or and, the, the, the role of the librarian uh, has changed significantly since I went to school, right? And, right. you know, like, uh, I've seen it. I know a lot of people that do uh, really, and I think that's, there's something really powerful about that because, you know, sure. I think libraries have evolved, right? And right. I don't even, a lot of people don't even call them libraries anymore because, libraries I, I don't know maybe i'm totally no you're right hating myself is that the notion is that libraries books right but it's more right. than books in many of these spaces right um, so how have you seen some of that evolution um not only maybe of the spaces but obviously of, of the work as well yeah so that has been a lot of what we've done mm -hmm. as as a group in our district really kind of stopping and asking what are librarians trained to do yeah what could they do to contribute to our core mission as a district and as schools? And are they doing that thing? Um, in a lot of cases, it seems to me like uh, we're, we're paying a lot of money for folks to not do what they could do. Right. Uh, but having said that, I don't, I don't think it's important. And we're not talking about trying to shoehorn, like get back in that stereotypical box. Right. Um, so we we really are they really are leaders in a lot of other areas in in providing rich experiences for students. But uh, the research is really really clear. Um, you become a strong reader when you read a bunch, and you yeah. don't read a bunch if you don't 
want to read what's in front of you. Right. And so to me, I, I maybe I'm wrong, but I make the claim that there's no such thing as a reluctant reader. There are only readers who don't like the books we've offered them. Right. So that's on us. Go find the books they love, because over and over again, we find the, the right book, the right genre. And then a kid, a reluctant reader becomes this passionate reader. Uh, so we just can't we can't give up. We have to keep pursuing like we just haven't found yours yet. How are we going to do that? So it's it's really it's really exciting um, to me, invigorating work like this is our core mission as a right. What's the most fundamental thing a school does, I think, is teaching kids to to be able to read and to read well and often. Um, it's right there with that core mission. Yeah. And, I, and hey, shout out to all the librarians out there, by the way. Right. Love it. So I, as I'm listening to you, I was, you know, obviously going back to my high school experience. And I actually remember um, my librarian. Uh, it, weirdly enough, it was the only place that I was actually encouraged to read books or things that I actually liked. Right. Yeah. So like in my classrooms, it was like, you know, and I'm not saying don't read the great Gatsby, but I'm not interested in that stuff. And that that's, I'm not a, I'm not a, I've just never been a fiction reader and that's okay. Right. And some people don't like nonfiction and that's okay. But if, right. but reading stuff. Right. But I remember actually, I could tell you her name, Heather Albers was a librarian and the new sports illustrated uh, every time it would come out because she knew I loved it. She, yeah. I would, she would have it ready for me to go. Cause that was literally what I read uh, the most. And uh, I always share the story. Rick Riley wrote the back uh, page article and I loved it. And he would take sports and connect it to emotion. Love and it. I would try to bring that into the classroom several times. And I would say like, Oh, that's not real reading. Cause it's a magazine. Yet Rick Riley actually has probably the biggest influence on my writing to this day. Love it. I, was I love story. that. I was discouraged in classrooms of reading that, but the librarian, because they, because like, and that's one of the tricks for librarians is that they probably see the most students in a day and to actually yes. know, know kids and know who they are and know what things that right. will get them excited about reading. Um, there, there's a real power in this. Okay. I got to ask you this question and All I, right. I am a sports guy, right? All right. So Nick Saban, I mean, yes. I don't, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't know if this will get you in trouble in Alabama, I, depending upon what your answer is. Nick Saban is probably, probably the most successful college football coach of all time, right? Like everyone in Alabama would agree with that statement. Well, except for if you're an Auburn fan, correct? Right, right. <laughs> everyone who's right, right agrees with that. Right. Okay. So I want you, I want to actually, I want to see, I don't know if you've ever been asked this question, but I, I know you're going to have an answer. So Nick Saban obviously is to be a great coach. You have to be a great teacher. What, yeah. what attributes of like, because Nick Saban's not really like, he's kind of like a Bill Belichick with media, yes. but obviously yes. he's like beloved by players, I think. Yes. Or at least, right? So like yes. what what characteristics of a great teacher do you see in Nick Saban? Like, I love that question. I love that. By the way, I have a, a, a an educator friend that probably once a week quote tweets something and says, Nick Saban for everything. <laughs> Look, if, if Nick Saban becomes governor and wants to fix education, right. I'll, I'll help. Right. Um, right. But no, so characteristics that he demonstrates of, yeah. of, of an exemplary teacher. So the first thing is he knows his content area, right? Like he's always yeah. studying. Like he knows he, you're not going to outwork him. Like right. he's all preparing. Two, if you, you, you may not see it very often in a game. But if you watch like documentaries or interviews and things like that, he's so good at building relationships with his folks. 
Yeah. Like he invests in people all the time. And so he knows his people. He knows like it looked like he's barking at people. He's being tough on them. Like, look, that that is right. That works because people know that he he is toughening them up. He's building them up to what they can be, including folk, uh, players that consistently come back and just talk yeah. about how, how much of an influence he's had on them. Um, and then I, I uh, I'll say something that is really less about coaching, but about a, a, a characteristic he displays. Um, I feel like he is an example of someone who uh, cares less about your past than about what you're willing to do today. Right. So look at all of the assistant coaches. Like it's almost a running joke. Like he's running a coaching rehab program right. here. Right. But like, to me that speaks to, and another, uh, so another great leader for me would be uh, Albus Dumbledore, right? Like it, it doesn't, the problems other people have with you are less important than what are you doing today? What are you willing to contribute? And so I'll stop there. But to me, he, um, he's not at all. I don't, I I don't know that anyone would call him warm and cuddly, but he knows what he's doing. He, he builds relationships with people and he, he cares more about do what you need to do than about any of the other stuff that goes on. I just look, if, if, as a teacher, you can do those things. You got a pretty good shot at success. So that that's actually what you just said about the warm and cuddly thing. That's one of the reasons I want to ask you because I think there is a perception that for teachers to build relationships with students, you have to be warm and cuddly, right? And I and I actually don't necessarily believe that. I think there's different ways. No. And, and sometimes uh, the warm and cuddly does actually build relationships maybe with some sure. students different than, you know, some of the, like I think different personalities, you know, mesh with right. one another. The thing with Nick Saban, and I know, I know this is a educate. I actually, I'm going to tell you straight up. When I asked that question, I'm like, that's probably one of my favorite questions I've asked on my podcast. I love that. There that you was, go. That was a good question. I'm pretty proud of that. You nailed it. Yeah. So the so the the reason and uh, I loved it is that you talked about him knowing his content, but also relationships. And if you actually look, if you follow college football. He's changed like he used to be like a totally running coach. Yes. Uh, it was all about running. He's got way more into passing because he actually he knows his content area so well, right. but he also builds relationships that he can actually change the way that he coaches based on yes. on his knowledge of the game and who uh, his personnel, which I actually Absolutely. think is really important. And I think for me, when I when I do like workshops and stuff like this, too, um, I actually I work with a lot of groups and they'll say like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're going to talk for an hour, but then what are you going to do after? Like, I want to know the schedule. I'm like, I don't know who I'm talking to. I got to get to know these people. Absolutely. And I said, but I know my content. Don't worry about it. I'll figure it out based on who I'm working with in the room. Beautiful. Right. And I think that to me, like that, you know, I felt really validated when he said that because that's an approach, that's an approach is that if he gets different personnel next year, it's not, mm-hmm. he, he knows the game, but he right. builds it around the people he, you know, connects with. So I, I, I really appreciate that. Hey, so when, when you use that next time, use the educational buzzword differentiation, that's what he's doing. Right. He's right. saying, I know my people, I'm differentiating my plan to the situation that come on, we could go on and on. It's, it's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's interesting. Well, hopefully, hopefully, uh, hopefully you're right on your prediction. I'm sure I'm, it's going to be, it's Alabama and Georgia, correct? Alabama and Georgia. That's gonna be that's gonna be an interesting game, right? Because it's gonna be a, it's a little revenge game for Georgia. <laughs> Alabama right. And Georgia, right? I just, I I am I've got friends who are absolutely confident, and 
the more confident I am, the less sure I, I know what I'm talking about. That's right. Hey, so let's, uh, I want to ask you about your book, uh, The Elephant in the Classroom. And the, the subtitle is Tracing the Complexity of Teaching by Exploring 13 Competencies and Practices. So when we were talking and you, you mentioned this briefly, you know, already in this podcast, you're basically answering the question, like, what is teaching? So we have like a consistent uh, kind of definition and, and really kind of thinking about that. So like, what, what did you, you know, in your research and your writing, like, what is the, is there a short answer to this or like at least a, a, a trailer answer to, to the book that you could kind of get people started with uh, that are wanting to dig in more? No, um, <laughs> um, here, here, the book's right here. And right. I, I can give you one image. Sure. Uh, and so uh, here, here you go. This is a black and white version of the image. Like, yeah, you can have to explain fact, it because most people listen on uh, on, on, on Apple Podcasts. So I, I got you. So what, what I'm showing you here is an image that shows uh, these uh, uh, 13 competencies and practices and how they interact. So these... My research suggests that th these are all distinct from each other, but very tightly intertwined with each other. Right. So, for example, uh, um, you have to know students. That's yep. a like. And by the way, all 13 are entire domains. They're not single things. So, right. like, we could talk, we, we could do six podcasts on all the different ways in which you, you can and should know your students. Right. Uh, we've just mentioned a minute ago, you have to know your subject matter. Yeah. You, you need to have pedagogical expertise, meaning you have to know which approaches to a specific topic uh, or a, a, a certain level of knowledge work better than other ways to teach yeah. that. And then you can take those three sets of knowledges and create a plan and then on and on. I'm not going to read all of them, but right. the, those those and then there's some of them that that are perhaps in what you would think of as the act of teaching so like yeah. when you say that person is teaching right now so like engaging students uh um uh, uh providing let me see here uh implementing effective strategies providing authentic learning experience like what uh, th those just at first blush you would say well aren't those the same thing right when we dig and say how you can't separate them from each other but they're they're not the same thing Right. right. Um, so I don't know. I, I I'm failing you on this one. Like that's the whole point. And this book is is based on on my dissertation study. And and I had members of the committee that said it's too much. You need to cut it down. And I say that's the entire point. The entire point is mm -hmm. teaching is so complex that we don't we don't have any way to hold the entirety of it. We don't even have think of it this way, like a satellite image. Right. Like it's, it's this massive forest and we're down here studying leaves and branches and right. we forgot the shape of the entire forest. It's not like it's a surprise to us. So uh, that that I'm sorry, everyone. No, that's the entire point. Teaching right. is massively complex. And I think I would argue it's silly to think that any one person has mastered all of teaching like right. I don't. I don't see how you can't live long enough to do that. Right. And this, like we were talking about this before and like um, you said, there's, 
there's 13 uh, areas that you uh, identify, 13, 13 competencies and practices. And right. um, one of the things that, you know, uh, we both are really adamant about is the notion of like knowing students, like building relationships, right? And so when you look at those things, do you see them as like an equal, like we, we talked about this, that um, right. if you're good at 12, but you don't know your students, right. then that's going to be an issue. Right. Um, and like probably, and this is always the question that I always struggle with is like, I can't get you to like people, right? right. Like if you don't right. like kids, we're in trouble. Right. But like, do you, do you see like, um, do you see these as kind of an equal weighting or are they all like have, you know, specific, you know, is there like, like, for example, knowing students, here's a question right. for you. How do you, what are some suggestions or strategies for teachers to do this? Right. Like, cause I know we can kind of dig into like, what does that mean? But like, what are some ways that teachers can do this where you have the Nick Sabins of the world and then, you Love know, uh, the opposite personalities. What are some ways that we can do that? Yeah. So, all right, I'm going to start with that last part first. Like if you, if, if the question is, how do I know my students better? Um, you have to be intentional about that. You have to talk yeah. to them yeah. and you have to ask them questions um, like uh, be, be, uh, be a student of your students, right? Like, ask them uh, things that aren't related to your subject area. Mm -hmm. What are your hobbies? What are your interests? What team are you on? Um, and, and then look, if you have a terrible memory like I do, well then make a spreadsheet or keep notes. Like right. not, don't interrogate the kid and write it down in front of them, but like keep notes and remember uh, uh, George is really fascinated with college football. So right. after the game, look at him and say, oh my gosh, did you see that interception? Right. That is knowing. And that provides a connection with him. And that itself won't make him learn math better, but it will lower his guard a little bit. It will, it will put him in a place where he can be receptive to the other things you do as part of teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and this is the thing, George, like humans are incredibly complex. So there isn't yeah. one thing to do. And you said earlier, different. Uh, so teachers need to, uh, there's nothing wrong with teachers having different personality types and different right. approaches themselves. So just because you're gruff doesn't mean you're hateful to kids, right? right? right. And so maybe there are kids that that's what they actually connect with. So I want to say something I, I said on the short broadcast is if you treat no matter what your personality is or your approach, if you treat each of your students with dignity all right. the time, then your style is fine. Right. Um, and, and to your to your bigger question, do these things hold equal weight? Like my research in the book wasn't intended to explore how these things interact with each other and which is more important. It, it, it's it's meant it was meant as an exploration, like to to right. notice. Um, so what I would say is, um, if you uh, describe someone, uh, so your example was someone who is good at instruction, right? Really good at planning, but doesn't know how to know students. The right. argument would actually be they're not teaching. Right. Like that's not yeah. all of teaching. It's incomplete. That doesn't mean that it has no value, but then there are some things on here that the research and what the profession expects of a teacher, there are a couple of them 
that I think a lot of times get lost. I mentioned reflection earlier. We talk about the importance of reflection, but how many, how often, I don't know if you've ever heard of someone getting written up because they weren't reflective enough. Right. I mean, that would shock me. Like, no, you don't write someone up for that. You write them up because they're insubordinate because they didn't do their lesson plans or something like that. Right. But it says, if you're not reflecting, you're not doing all of teaching. And and that's really the point is there's, it's so vastly complex and there's a mismatch between the complexity of teaching and the rights and privileges that are afforded the professionals that do this other professions, you know, are are very complex and then there's a better match. Uh, So is your like, as you're talking about this, so I'm going through my Rolodex of memories and thinking, did we ever actually talk about what teaching is as a staff member? Like, like we, we do this PD right. Um, on this stuff, this stuff. Right. But like, then everyone kind of scurries off, does their own version of these things. Right. And like, you know, when we're talking about, um, uh, personalities, right. I I think there's, there's always like, uh, there's these, there's books that are like, teach like this, teach like this, teach like this. Right. And I can tell you straight up that I will never be the person that stands up on a desk is like, you know, uh, Robin Williams, dead poet society. That's not my personality. Right. Right. And I think that it actually, uh, sometimes I like, I think it's, like, would I want my kid in a class like that? Probably, like, yeah, that'd be great. But it's not like that's the only way. It's more important right. to me what you, what your kind of philosophy of maybe learning is in some ways. Right. Like, what do you expect from kids through that process, right? Yes. I think try to, like, center the conversation as, like, what do we actually get kids to do um, right. through this process? So when you're, do you see or have you seen effective ways where staff, administrators maybe just lead the conversations because i've i've promoted this for a while it's like you actually have to kind of like like we have a lot of times their teachers are evaluated based on things they've never had a conversation about when it's like they're not really they're not so it's like hey you're expected to do this even though like you know because it was written by someone else blah 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 but like the car like do we do you have you ever seen this effectively done where you know administrators staff are actually having these conversations on what teaching actually is. Yeah. Uh, As a teacher, I've been part of that practice a couple of times. And I mentioned my, my time in San Diego, Mm -hmm. that was kind of a systematic and it, it, it wasn't in the maybe framework that I, the way I'm thinking of it in this book, but it was basically, there are, some number of things that we know are really critical to being successful. And so we will all stay on this path of learning how to gain competence of this thing. And it's, it's, we don't demand expertise or high levels of excellence or, 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 or being the best. We just insist on growth. Like Hmm. you need to continue progressing as an educator. Um, but the flip side of that, so the answer to your question is, yes, I have seen that. Right. The flip side of that is that in my experience is very rare because, right. and, and so consider too, how very difficult that is for a principal to do today. Um, look at things like attrition. Uh, I've seen expressed, for example, 
a, a school's retention of employees, but it's usually like year over year. Right. So here's a question for any given school. What percentage of your faculty was here three years ago or right. five years ago? Like, are you together growing or is it a, you know, do you have a federation of folks that are not, haven't had the opportunity to learn together? Right. So that whole, like, so what should we do next is in fairness to school leaders, very difficult to do because you're going over the same ground with some folks. And as you say, we've, I've never heard about this for others, or we have all this jargon we throw around that we give it a fancy title and they do know, they just don't know mm -hmm. by that name. You know, we, 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 uh, we use, uh, uh, product names as verbs, right. You know, like we're going to dibbles. I don't know if you're familiar with dibbles, like a, a test no. at the elementary level, like we're going to dibble the kids. I'm like, it's the, <laughs> it's the name of a product, right? right? Like right, right, right. We're gonna assess their learning. Right. But that's, I mean, you could give another example of, of products as verbs, um, instead of what is effective practice and no matter right. what tales, how do I continue to get better at that? Okay. So I got, I got maybe a little bit of analogy and we'll connect it back to Alabama football, right? So you, you talk about attrition, right? But Alabama has players that maximum maybe five years there, right? right? So they'll maybe redshirt one year and then they'll play for four. Yeah. There's a consistency in the program, right? Yes. And so there's, so like, I think there's, it's not that it's impossible to do those things because we see it done well in other yes. organizations because like the maximum amount of time a player is going to be in that system is five years. There's going to be right. a new player replace them, but they still actually have to like, kind of, there's still a model of what they do for with Alabama That's football. It. So I think there, there's a connection there. Um, the, the, one of the reasons I ask you this question is because like, there's an inconsistency um in like expectations from administrators and it throws teachers off and i'll give you like a so i do a lot of work with technology and so you see so um one of the things that we were evaluated on as teachers in alberta canada where i live was like how you use technology in the classroom right right so so you have administrator a walk into a classroom and they see a teacher using a smart board and like mm -hmm. moving stuff and like mm -hmm. touching it and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, wow, like you are so good with technology. This is absolutely incredible. And you know, they're, you know, flying because a lot of times that administrator doesn't know anything about technology. They don't know how to use I, it. I've, I've had that exact experience. Go right. on. But then you have administrator B walk in that same classroom and say like, Hey, like, that's cool. You use a smart board, but I'm not actually seeing kids use technology to learn at all. So like, yeah. it's more about what you do, but it's not necessarily what the kids are doing because, uh, with that utilization of technology, right? right. But the extra but so like, I don't blame the teachers in this situation because a lot of times they like adapt to what that administrator wants because they're nervous about evaluations, things like this too, as opposed to like, Hey, what is the, cons what is the consistent expectation that we have? like across right. the way. So if we're in the same school district and principal comes from one school to another, it's right. not like just, you know, it's not just like moving from one program to another. Right. There's a consistency. Like, so like, how do you, like, how do you see kind of that connection between like where, because I think that's why this, why what you're writing and what you're talking about is so important is because it's, it's hard to 
maintain expectations as a teacher right. when a new person comes in and the expectations totally change. Like the print, I'm like a big believer. The principal is the most important pe- person in the organization yes. oh, because, sure. because they affect so many people and they're the closest. They're the, they have the most authority closest to kids. Right. So like, Correct. as long as you have a good personality, parents like you, then right. you don't get complaints to the central office. And so superintendents right. will leave you alone, but your expectations could be wildly different from, and then, you know, teachers yes. are like, well, I don't, I don't know what to do with this person. This, this, you know, she's this principal, she's totally different than this one. That's, you know, thought this way. So like, wh- like, how do you see kind of that? How do you bridge that connection where there is like, it's not about the personality. It's more about, right. you know, the, the, ex- the expectation being consistent across the board. I got a couple of things. First of all, um, I, I hope it doesn't hurt your heart and you don't cut me off immediately, but right. in my research, uh, using technology is not one of the 13 competencies. Yeah. And I actually address it like I think people would argue that it is. But I make the case that today you uh, uh, the, the abstract expectation of teaching includes the use of technology. Yep. But it runs across multiple of those competencies. Like it's not right. its own thing. Right. Back, back to your question, though. Um, you mentioned football, why that works for them that they have turnover and continue to be strong is that they have a structure that's similar to the, the districts and the parts of the world that are very, very good at public education, which is mentoring the younger professionals is a, is a a normal part of the job. So Mm -hmm. if you're on the football team, part of your job is to train the younger ones Right. to play your position um, in, in places around the world. And if you've read the, uh, the work of uh, Linda Darlingham and others, what these places have in common, it's that every teacher in these, in these systems are mentored, is mentored right. by someone, and uh, uh, you're expected to be mentored as well. Right. Um, so to me, that's, that's the answer. And it's not about who is supervising you. And I admire a handful of teachers I've worked with who understand what accomplished teaching means, the view, the research-based this is teaching, and have pursued that and have learned when I have a principal that doesn't think that's important, I'll figure out how to give them what they want and continue. And then if it gets bad enough and they actively stop me from growing as a teacher, I'll go somewhere where they will value what I am. Mm-hmm. To me, that speaks to a flaw in our system that, and you know, we were, we're huge on local control. Um, and we can argue the merits of that. But one of the things local control provides is the freedom to do things badly. And there's just no two ways about that was a bad decision. That was, But you have the legal right to do that as, right. as a school board, as a superintendent, whatever, as, as a principal. So I, I think the answer to what you're talking about lies in uh, of pushing back as educators against uh, the notion of like who says you get to be the arbiter of what excellence in teaching is, Mr. or Miss Principal? Like collectively, we understand what good teaching is. Right. Um, having said that, that takes a whole lot of courage 
to have that attitude when you don't hold tenure or when you're a new teacher and oh. your job's on the line. Uh, but I mean, that that can be a call to action, too, is to say, um, I assume that I got get a, a lot wrong. So collectively, we, uh, we have an understanding of where we're headed as professionals towards accomplished practice. Um, and, and no one person should hold kind of be a gatekeeper of what accomplished practice looks like. Well, we and like you talked about the, the notion of mentorship, and I think that's that's really important. But I, but I think it's also that we have the ability to learn from any staff member, yes. no matter where they are in their career, first year, yes. last year, whatever. And uh, one of the things that I used to do as an administrator, and this might sound, this is gonna, some people don't like that I used to do this. I used to actually try to put um, people that were interview positions into situations where they had to like disagree with me mm. and, and kind of talk about like why they disagreed with me. So Good. sometimes I would maybe take a stand on something that I didn't actually believe, but I just want to see how they right. interact. And part right. of the reason was I wanted them to be able to say like, yeah, well, here's why I believe this thing and here's why. But I, I know this is going to sound weird. If they just agreed with me, when like I would like outright disagree with them on something and they would just change their mind. That was actually something that I didn't want. I wanted right. them to see like, cause I wanted those conversations. And I think it's kind of nurturing that too, because sometimes it actually is detrimental when we just agree right. because it's our boss. Right. right. And so how does that actually help kids? That's, that's right. always my question. Right. And I would actually like talk them, you know, like, Hey, here's why we had that conversation. Here's why, because on our staff, it's not about your idea or my idea. It's about the best idea. And we have to figure that out. Right, together. right, and right. I think, I think to me, you know, the, I know a lot of teachers are listening to this right now and they're like, well, I'd have a really hard time with my administrator. And the reason right. I'm sharing this is for those administrators saying, Good. do you actually create a culture right. where, where actually challenge it? You know, as long as it's respectful, right? Like if, if you're like, if you're like, Hey, I don't agree with you, stupid. Then that, that's, a, that's a totally different right. thing, right? Right. Um, I, I'm actually I'm curious about because you you mentioned the technology thing, and I'm I, like I I think a lot of times the I think because I'm comfortable with technology, people think that I'm like oh technology is the answer, <laughs> right? right? But the the reality of it is a lot of times when we talk about teaching, schools will just throw devices into a classroom yes. and thinking everything changes. I'm like, well, you, there's nothing that's changed about your approach. You just added this random thing into it but never really talked about what does it affect learning but I, but I, and i always kind of struggle with this too because um because there is a there is connection to learning right so right. a lot of teachers would complain that a kid can't write cursive but also some of those same teachers wouldn't be able to figure out how to get onto zoom <laughs> Right, right. Right. And so like, so like, if you say to if you're say, I'm not good with technology, sometimes I struggle with that, because it's like, well, I'm not good at learning and figuring stuff out, whereas exactly. some kids actually have that ability. So I think it's not necessarily that, like, it's kind of like, I don't think technology is the answer. But if you mm -hmm. actually don't think that you have to learn, like have the ability to learn, that's, I, that's where I, I like, I always kind of like wrestle with those ideas in my head, because I like, I'm with you, like, and I've seen it, I, you know, like if we get this program, I'm like, then what? Like you, you just, right. you're going to do the same thing plus the program. Like how does right, that right, change right. anything? Right. Right. So like, how do you, how do you see, and I, like, this is one of the questions I kind of thought about as I'm listening to you. When is the point where 
we get students to a space where they don't necessarily need a teacher. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and like, is that ever happened? And especially like we were talking about, um, librarians before, you know, inspiring kids to read. I think if you can inspire a kid to want to read on their own, you've done, you, you become a success, right. right. In, in the work. So like where we have this access to just inordinate amounts of information right? and like how we dissect things, like where, where is there kind of like, I, I don't, I'm trying to think of the term where we kind of like let go and it's like, now it's on the learner. Like the teaching right. is to teach learning. Correct. But then when do we kind of release that, that, that space, I guess. I, it, it seems to me that the outcome you've just described should be the goal of, right. of schooling. We should be saying, uh, we aren't for a go back to reading. We're not trying to produce high test scores. We're trying to produce readers, people yeah. who can and do read in the other areas, uh, both the content areas and then habits of mind and, right. and, and ability to think, et cetera. Uh, so, so for me, the whole, the whole notion of scaffolding, for example, like it's funny how that that's one example of, we understand the noun scaffold and that the entire purpose of a scaffold is to do a thing and then take down the scaffold and leave the other thing there. Except when we do scaffolding in, in school, sometimes that looks like telling kids what to put on the worksheet or something like right, that. Right. Um, so, so for me, this, uh, a thought that sparked when you were talking there about technology, I, I, I mentioned I, I participated in a doctoral program on instructional technology. And one of the first conversations we have is just like, what is technology? Yeah. Um, and by definition, a thing that helps you do a thing right. is like technology. A like a pencil. It is. So, you, so you're talking about uh, a Google, Google Docs right. versus a piece of paper. Okay, well, then go back an iteration um, how did the proliferation of, of leaves of paper transform the way learning happened from, from slates to, to having paper? Right. And if the answer is it didn't really, then we're, we're not, we're not advancing students ability to learn. And I think that's the missing piece with technology is right. this is where your understanding of the learning goals both the content, but also what is it that students are supposed to know and be able to do at a really, I think, meta level. So writing, if we just say they need to write well, but what is writing? And right. so this is conveying of ideas. So if you say the really important thing is the conveying of ideas, and one form of that will be written, whether that's typewritten or handwritten. Right. Uh, 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 ideas. Now we can say, oh, does this tool help students progress towards proficiency better than another option? Mm -hmm. an, an observation I've made is that the teachers that, from my perspective, were the very best uh, at implementing technology in the classroom for learning mm -hmm. and champions of doing that were also the best at insisting when not to use technology because oh. they thought right now it would actually impede the learning goal if we used a technological uh, program or device or something like that so no i'm sorry you can't use your chromebook right now mm -hmm. um, 
there's no such thing as a Chromebook diorama. Like we're, I, I just made that up. That's probably a bad right. example. Right. Or, or, probably, or, or, probably, like, maybe there is now. Who knows? Probably someone invented it just by listening to this. But that's, you know, that's it. Yeah, there right. you go. Patent pending. Um, but, but that, so to me, that whole mindset of, I feel like we feel, we think that technology has some kind of magic where right. it's just a super powerful amplifier. So if you're, if you're engaging in poor practice, right. you'll do poor practice a lot, a lot louder and a lot more. Right. right. So you will hear faster, right? Faster. You'll be back Absolutely. Back it, th- yeah. that, like as I'm, I was thinking about, you know, some of the things that you said, like we know like a hammer's technology, like a pencil's right. technology. But I think what we refer to as technology, I think this is really every generation is things that were invented when we there were when we were alive. Right. So I see the iPhone as technology, but my kids don't. They just no. see it as a thing that exists. Right. right? They don't think right. of it that way. So it's like kind of doing this we, we we don't i don't think we recorded this but we were talking i think you mentioned samur model at some point yeah. and i i had a massive issue with the samur model and in the way that it was not not ruben pentadura's interpretation of it but the interpretation of what it was in the classroom and you kind of touched right. on it a little bit right is that you have on basically this is how a lot of schools were using this you have levels you have the lowest level you have substitution like are you doing something you could have done without yeah. this device right or and then you have redefinition at the lowest and like it was like it was never it was never implemented by curriculum people it was in, implemented right. by people that went to tech conferences and things like this right <laughs> right so 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 then you have a you go into a classroom you see a kid writing on an ipad right. and then someone comes in and says you know that's just substitution they could be writing on this and you're like but the kid never writes right right right, right, right. Now, exactly. now i got them writing right? exactly and that's the thing but then you see on the other side of the spectrum, they're like, wow, we're doing these videos and look at these kids doing this. I'm like, well, that kid has a million followers on TikTok. Like, exactly. Right. right. So like, so the, the thing that I always ask is you, you shouldn't be using this. The question you should be asking, is this transformative to the learner? Right. Is go. this actually helping the kid? Are we using something in a way that helps this kid if they didn't have access to this? Right. And I think that's because I think it's, it was a very like technology focused model right. not necessarily like how is this actually helping the learner um one of one of the things that you also mentioned i i always talk about this uh and i think it's so i like my first year teaching just full of energy could tell stories like yeah. it was just like kids would just listen to everything i said you know and i was just like really engaging and things like this and i actually remember i was teaching grade four and then my kids went to a grade five class and uh those students would come and visit me they're like mr Cross, like you know this teacher we have right now is like just so boring like they make us like do stuff and we're like writing all the time and and i was like oh my god like i created that issue yeah right? yeah like, because it was all about how i like it's all it was really like george centric if that makes sense there you go like, there you go really getting them excited about me but once mm. i'm pulled out of the equation they couldn't figure out where the teacher in grade five was actually teaching them how to learn yeah right yeah and so yeah. like like do you know and that's where i've always kind of struggled with this is that it's really like the the art of teaching i know that you talk about the complexity of it is really how do we get you know students to be able to go learn on their own yeah, right absolutely. and i i actually think in my first years of teaching i did the opposite right it was like you no know, it's dependent on me like if i don't show up you're in trouble Right. Uh, so I, I'm going to, I'm going to spark off you there. And for yeah. me, 
the the thing that worked for me was I would uh, nudge and guide and lead these discussions, yeah. and then but I started to realize that if I don't ask key questions and right. point forward. That was just them watching for cues for me. And they would have these epiphanies. I'm like, I basically planted that idea, right? right? right. Instead of teaching them how to formulate their own questions. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I totally identify with that. And, and asking, your, asking yourself, how do you, how is it not just about compliance? And I think there's right. a tie in to teachers too. Like we have this profession that very much, rewards and in a lot of ways demands compliance like you're mm -hmm. gonna do the thing like you said with the the principal that insists on their way or things like that um and and we train people out of asking questions and growing and things like that and then as someone pointed out uh, they, they said uh especially because of tenure for a lot of teachers there's a specific disadvantage right. To, to getting better, right? Like why, there's, there's nothing in it for me to get better right. at my craft. Um, unlike other professions where the better you get, the, the, the right. more Different incentives. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that whole, I mean, this speaks to the larger construct of education. Like it, it, where, where did we start thinking, or I, I don't know the answer, but where do we start thinking that the, the thing was compliance? Right. It, it, it never was right. supposed to be about compliance. It was about, training your mind and and right. learning to learn yeah okay all right andrew i'm gonna ask you one last question that has nothing to do all with right. teaching so right behind you i see a record player yes what's so what's give me like your a couple of records that you have back there what, what's what's some of your favorites uh so the one you're looking at right there that's the jackson five. Oh, um, there you go and i was listening to that earlier and then i've got um what was i i got jesus christ superstar uh john i've got yellow brick road back there so oh, i it's uh, funny because i actually like i can like pop on music it goes through my uh you know ceiling speakers i got nice. like a tv in front of me and all this other stuff and i never use it i only use my record player in this love room, it right I love and it. It, there's it's weird because there's like a certain warmth and uh and connection to that right and it's kind of interesting because i had no interest in records when i was a kid right like the right. first the first thing I ever bought for music was not a record. It was a cassette tape, right? There I can remember go. it was the Jets because I love the song Crush on You. So there you little, go. Little, uh, uh, little uh, George trivia there. But Andrew, hey, thanks. It was it was awesome talking to you about this. I, I, I hope that um, what I hope from this is that not only people check out your book, but they start having these conversations, Good. right? Good. And I think that would be, you know, so beneficial because I think we talk about like this is such an important topic that we kind of just assume that everyone right. just agree we all agree but there's i think there is that that the like as you said the complexity we have to kind of get into it so if we don't have and the conversations right then people just kind of go off and are just doing whatever that's it and it's it's the elephant that's sitting right there yeah and the question i have is if you can see that there's an elephant sitting there what should you do about it right right well, hey, I, I'm going to encourage people to check out uh, Andrew's book, Elephant in the Classroom. You can see it in the description down below. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to people hearing this. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day.